Hello, and thank you for supporting the History of World War II podcast, Episode 13, The Winds of Change. Just as Alfred had used the cash coming in from Spoon Sales, his brother's contribution, to give him time to experiment with rail tires, the patents on those kept his company flush, which allowed him to experiment with armaments. Railroads epitomized the 19th century, and that industry could not have come into being without the steelmakers. Iron simply wasn't strong enough. Alfred was benefiting from being at the right place at the right time, but there were certainly challenges. In order for the railroad boom to happen, steelmakers had to first solve the fundamental problems of springs, axles, rails, and tires. For Alfred, being the flighty genius he was, the first three, springs, axles, and rails, did not present much of a problem, and soon he was mass-producing these from cast steel. It was the tires, or wheels, that held him up. His problem here was, they had to be seamless, they could not be welded together, as in, making a long rod of a piece of steel, and then bending it into a circle, and then welding it together. That would never do. Its integrity would be ruined from the outset. But since he worked out the process of making Castile, he had met his first real challenge. His cannon were much more straightforward. That was a matter of money. But Alfred was driven and focused and methodic. The answer finally came to him. How he saw the problem still survives to this day. His notes have faded to yellow, but are still quite legible. He used centrifugal motion for a solid, round, but hollow piece, and finished it off on a lathe. By mid-January 1852, his first tire was done. Now he had to figure out a way to mass-produce them, or all this was meaningless. The potential was as unlimited as any business venture could be, if Krupp got it right, and got it right first. After spending hour upon hour in the factory, he finally worked out a suitable process. He would mass-produce the wheel as close to perfection as he could, then have his men use a cold chisel to file for a last bit of shaping. Then the touched-up wheel would be put back into the forge again, which would remove the chisel marks. A nod was as good as a wink. Having this last touch worked out, Alfred went into production in 1853 and got to show off his tires the following year at the Munich Fair. As no one else could even come close to what he could mass-produce, he was soon selling 15,000 wheels a year. This type of output and sales continued throughout his life. Many years later, he acknowledged what the sale of rail tires did for the concern by making his trademark three interlocked circles, or rail tires. It continued to be the Krupp trademark at least into the 1960s. The tires proved Alfred's genius, as there was almost no competition. But in trying to obtain a patent for his invention, the following fiasco, it was entirely Alfred's fault, more than proved the flighty part of the equation that made up the man. The main question leading up to this comedic tragedy was, how long would his exclusive rights on the patent last 
before others were allowed to copy his work and compete with him in the open market. Or, as Alfred saw it, steal his work and then underbid him at every turn. Berlin recognized his patent on February 3rd, 1853, but that was just the beginning. How long from that moment was he free to be practically the only one selling his tires? The longer he got from the government, the more money he could make. Alfred, with a straight face, asked for ten years. The government's counteroffer was six. The compromise was eight. Alfred complained right away. He would have complained at any number. But his objection, soon formally lodged, was really just setting the groundwork for the future. Exactly eight years into the future. The battle for Krupp's exclusivity was not over by any means. Alfred had come a long way since his father nearly drove the family and concern into poverty before dying a failure. Ironically, all of the European continents treated his patent with respect and paid well for it, that is, except his own country. Only Prussia would deny Alfred what every other country happily handed over. But honestly, again, it was Alfred's own fault. After the Crystal Palace victory in London, Alfred gained many admirers, and that was nice, but if they weren't buying, then who cared? Certainly not Alfred. One of his new admirers was Prussia's Minister of Commerce, a banker named August von der Heidt. He wanted to come and pay his respect to the new Prussian star, and see the factory. His only fault, but really it was Alfred's, was that von der Heidt was not royalty, so he wasn't getting in. But typical Alfred, instead of making up an excuse, uh, sorry, very busy here, awfully busy, sorry, uh, gave the man a curt no, without so much as adding a sir, your lordship, or a low bow. Alfred suspected everyone of being a spy, even the innocent commerce minister. Naturally, von der Heidt was not used to being treated in this manner and was professionally and personally offended. Alfred had just made a lifelong enemy, and a powerful one at that. But it wasn't until the next year, after the patent was recognized, that Crump realized he had stepped into a pile of shiza of his own making. His boot and reputation so besmirched, Alfred's attempts to placate the commerce minister were immediate and overdone. But that's how Alfred did everything. Soon there was a picture of von der Heidt on Alfred's wall, where the future canon king could see it and be inspired. At least, that's what he wrote to the minister. No time was lost in getting the aggrieved party to know his new vaunted status at Krupp's. But pride still wounded, von der Heidt struck first. As his office was over the national railroads, he let it be known that only the barest minimum of Krupp steel tires were to be ordered. He wanted his people to stick with the flawed or puddle wheels as much as possible. This was absurd, of course, as his decision endangered lives of countless passengers. But he was in charge, and Prussia was the model police state. His instructions were followed. By Easter of 1857, Alfred could write to a friend that in one month, Krupp had sent more steel tires to France, or just one company in Austria, 
than to the Prussian State Railways since his patent. This could not stand. Prussian honor was at stake. So were Krupp profits. Something had to be done. Alfred had already complained to a baron. That did no good. Now Alfred complained to von der Heidt directly. That did no good either. From the point of view of British industry, Krupp's matter was a tempest and a teapot. But Krupp's time was coming. So was Germany's. To demonstrate this, here are some figures. Between 1850 and 1860, the annual production from Ruhr blast furnaces increased 15 times. By 1857, there were more than 1,000 Krumpenier. The Gustav Fabrik shops had octupled, and now consisted of a rolling mill, a power press, a fitting shop, and dozens of steam hammers, furnaces, and foundries. It was a world within a world. Krupp's world. He also had agents in London, Paris, and Vienna. And, just to show how far he'd come, his Vienna rep also worked for the Rothschilds. The big leagues, indeed. As he was expanding, and it was that or die, Alfred started making screws and crankshafts for foreign ships. He didn't have a monopoly on these, like he did the rail tires. But he made superior items, and as this was the time of ocean-going vessels, more money started coming in. Still, one wrong step, and the Krupps were done. Everything was being reinvested back into the works. Alfred's dream was coming true. The concern was growing. But there was always overhead to pay and experiments to execute. What we call today R&D. That research cost money, and if something did bring a profit, well, that was down the road in the future. Then, there was always making sure he had enough raw materials. That meant cornering the market in certain raw materials, which drained his cash on hand. Knowing he had to strike while the iron, or in this case, cast steel, was hot, Alfred pushed himself his workers, his salesmen, and, if possible, willed the world to bend to his ways. Within this storm of his own making, he was insistent at being the only person at the wheel. As for prosperity, this decision had its good and bad points. His future heirs would certainly be appreciative of his demanding total control. But if this one individual made a mistake, then there would be nothing for the future sole proprietors to control. Ironically, Alfred was trying to expand his business dealings and his works during a general downturn in the European economies. For everyone else, the 1850s were all about survival. But Krupp must have missed the memo. This greatly concerned Alfred's sleeping partner, Fritz Soling, the man who had helped him at his darkest moment, when Alfred's mother was trying to decide how to split up the company. Soling, sensing the earth falling out from beneath their feet, asked Alfred, why not form a corporation? They had many advantages. But to Alfred, this was like asking him to share his wife, Bertha. Nothing doing. And so the great battle started. Soling tried to move in, asked to see the balance sheets, and made rather tense recommendations. Alfred ignored him completely. After all, if he had the stones to freeze out his own family. He wrote to a friend later, 
Quote, I do not want to submit the balance sheet to anyone. Unquote. As the sole owner, the fitness of the company was his concern alone. Everyone else just collected a paycheck and answered to him. He answered to nobody. Well, except the ghosts of his mother and father. Solney continued to push, and Alfred pushed right back. He wrote of this time, quote, I must be what I have given myself out to be, sole proprietor, unquote. Soling would get his interest for his set number of years, as their deal dictated, but that was it. Pushing past Soling and pushing through the economic downturn, Alfred kept searching for more credit during the 1850s, and this distressed Soling greatly. But for Alfred, it was simply the price of doing business. He slept very well at night, thank you very much. But not Soling. His nerves were a wreck. His health failed. Then his inner light, his soul, broke over the great heights of death Alfred was carrying them all to. Then, in 1857, a panic hit Central Europe. Alfred tied himself to the masts and held on. But Soling became an insomniac. And that was the last straw for this man's weakened constitution. He soon gave up the ghost. This is where I say that Alfred, respecting the dead and all that Soling did for him, said something nice at the eulogy. But I can't, because Alfred didn't. Instead, he summed up the obvious. Quote, one week he was well, the next he was dead. Unquote. Soling had crossed the line, and Alfred could not, would not, forgive or forget. But now, back to Krupp's battle with Fonda Height. On June 3, 1859, Alfred made another appeal for an extension of his patent. Von der Heidt rejected it. Alfred threatened to take his work and knowledge to another country. But that was just words. Instead, his actions were thus. He had General Constantine von Voigtsrichs, the director of the General War Department, who approved of steel cannons, whispered to Wilhelm, who was now regent, and he had been since the previous year, as his brother's mental ability sank lower. With von Voigtsrichs having smoothed the way for Alfred, the head of Krupp sent a ringing patriotic letter to the regent, claiming, quote, In spite of the higher gains which could be indubitably realized, I have refused to supply any cast steel guns to foreign countries when I believed I could serve my native land thereby. Unquote. He then asked again, humbly, for an extension. On March 19, 1860, Wilhelm urged the ministry under von der Heidt to approve it. On April 14th, von der Heidt humbly recommended refusal. But on April 25th, Wilhelm overrode this recommendation. Alfred had won. Von der Heidt had lost. But so did Wilhelm. Alfred's patriotic letter had been carefully written. He said he did not sell cannon to foreign powers. He didn't say he wasn't desperately trying to sell cannon to anyone in Europe. But at the time, no sales were finalized, for various reasons. Love of bronze, the need to support local gunmakers, and although the international arms race started with a whimper, 
it had started. Strangely, Alfred's first gun sale went to the Khedive of Egypt. He ordered 26 of them. Then the Tsar of Russia asked for a 160-pounder. And if he liked it, he might buy more. Alfred said yes to both, but was nervous about the second request. He was still shy in taking monarchs at their word. In fact, he had recently been swindled by other sovereigns. The Duke of Brunswick took a gift gun and didn't even reply with a thank you. The King of Hanover ordered a cannon, got it, then offered to pay less than originally promised, but in the end paid nothing for it. What was Alfred to do? You couldn't go over a king's head. There was no one to go to. But, having been ripped off before, Alfred struck upon a, to him, brilliant idea. He let it be known that if people weren't willing to pay cash, he would happily accept gifts in return. Thoroughbred horses was one good example. But please, not that he could say this out loud, no more ribbons or medals. He couldn't sell or eat a ribbon. It was meaningless to a man like Alfred Krupp. But the royals didn't listen. One gave him the order of this, another the order of that, fourth class. Nice, but, you know, not money. As much as Alfred willed the universe to his ways, it wasn't working. By January 19, 1859, the future Canon King had all but decided to give up on munitions. There was simply no money in it. He was lied to and palmed off with trinkets. Meanwhile, his costs only increased. Finally, he decided on tools only, quote, for the use in the arts of peace, unquote. Even Alfred had his saturation point. Up to this point, every entry into Alfred's accounting books concerning armaments was in the red. Only his future with guns seemed to have gone into black. Suddenly, a small flame appeared. The prince regent was about to order 106 pounders. The flame grew. Voitzleeks talked his lordship into increasing the order to 312 six-pounders. The flame brightened more. By 1859, an advance of $100,000 from the Prussian War Office was received in Essen. Soon, the other royal houses of Europe found out, as many royals were related to each other, of the growing activity and excitement in Essen. Not wanting to be left behind, thoroughbred horses started showing up, gifts for the owner of Krupp's. When the other leaders found out Alfred had all the horses he needed, elaborate carriages started making their way to Alfred's front door. The flame continued to grow. One royal family after another, mostly German, started showing up, wanting a tour. Fortunately, Alfred, a master organizer, handled the regal parades perfectly. Then the flame exploded, and Alfred's world was lit forever. In early January of 1861, Friedrich Wilhelm IV died. His brother, Alfred's new best friend, Wilhelm I, was now king of Prussia, and he had plans. The new king would tour the Gustavfabrik again, and this time bring his entourage with him. Thrilled, Alfred went all out, and that's saying something for a Prussian. 
He planned out every movement of the king's visit, even making sure Wilhelm got to watch the complete process of cast steel making. This would take hours, and by the time it was done, everyone in Wilhelm's entourage hated Krupp. But the king said nothing, just smiled and nodded. Why? He was going to need Krupp's guns. He was going to recapture Prussia's honor. And if that meant war, the great game of kings, then so be it. Because here's what Wilhelm I inherited. In 1815, by the time Europe was rallied around, the idea of stopping Napoleon, the number of German states had gone from 300 to 100. Napoleon did this himself at the height of his power. But this number shrank a bit more in the lining up against the Corsican. Later, in 1815, the number of states was still an unwieldy 38. Collectively, it was called the Bund, and wasn't expected to last, as everyone was jealous of any other state's power. Of the 38, Prussia and Austria were the largest. It soon came down to a showdown, and Austria had won. Prussia was down, but it wasn't out. If fighting wasn't the way, perhaps politics would serve. Friedrich Wilhelm IV then suggested in May of 1848 that a new German Union was needed, with Austria on the outside, looking in. Austria, for its part, wasn't strong enough at the moment for another war, but the other smaller German states still feared it. The best Austria could do, as a counterstroke, was offer up a plan much like the Bund of 1815. If it was accepted, Austria might not be number one in that scheme, but neither would Prussia. The best of a bad situation. And it worked. In the autumn of 1850, the German states jumped on board. Soon, Prussia was the only one not to sign, and it was either that or bring a lopsided war upon itself. So, Friedrich Wilhelm IV, ignoring Krupp's cannons, signed what was known as the shame of old news. All this, Wilhelm I, now king, was going to obliterate. He had to do it in steps. The first was getting the crown on his head. Check. The next was a visit to Essen to make sure Alfred was a true patriot. Double check. Next, it was to increase Prussia's army. Riding over all opposition, it's good to be the king, Wilhelm pushed through military reform, enlarged conscription, and soon had his large standing army. Check. Now, the king needed someone to take a firm hand of his empire, squeeze every bit of efficiency out of it, and make it dance to his tune. And who was, besides, someone who passionately believed in the right of the king to rule. The king found all this and more in one Otto Edward Bismarck Schoenhausen. A year after visiting Essen, the king made Bismarck his chief of cabinet. It was not too long before the people of Prussia realized that their new master was very different from his brother. In the words of Bismarck, quote, The great questions of the day will not be settled by resolutions and majority votes, but by iron and blood. 
Greetings, everyone from Central Virginia. Um, just to let you know, I apologize if I rush through this uh, more than usual. I'm about to run out the door literally for a family reunion, so I apologize. Next, uh, and you probably heard this on the regular episode, uh, the tour is really looking good. It's coming together. I think it's going to happen this fall. So please don't hesitate to let me know if you are interested. Uh, just send me an email, and you can find uh, all that on the website, worldwar2podcast.net. And before you start to think that this is just the Krupp podcast, um, I'm going to do some episodes on the Americans who were trapped in Paris in 1940 when the Germans came flying in. Um, so the Americans are still neutral, but they're leaning towards the British. The Germans have to be careful, uh, but the Americans have to be careful too so they don't end up shot as belligerents. So I'm going to cover some of that um, and some other stuff, uh, Jesse Owens in the Olympics, but we'll keep the, um, the Krupp story going along as well. So I just want to let you know, I'm going to change it up a little bit, but I hope you like the Krupp story. I find it very interesting. So I'll see you as soon as I can with a membership episode number 14.